Hello and welcome to the EMG Health Podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. In some recent solo episodes of this podcast, I've discussed a number of alternative medical therapies, sometimes exploring their origins and how some people think they may help, and sometimes, of course, just going on a bit of a rant. Moving away from alternative therapies, my colleagues at EMG and I felt that we needed to address the Ukrainian conflict and its healthcare implications, not just the direct casualties of war, all the impacts. And there's quite a lot to unpack here, and I'm going to do my best to stay on point. But it's pretty harrowing to consider, so please forgive me if I ramble. First, I have to state that this is an apolitical rant. Global ambitions are complex, and the history books are always written by the victor. However, when I hear phrases like war crimes or the legality of a particular action, my teeth start to itch because all war is terrible and tragic. And at what point can humanity not behave in a rational manner and not wantonly kill and maim other people? I want to invoke Wilfred Owen, my favourite poet who wrote during the First World War. If you could hear at every jolt the blood come gargling from the froth-corrupted lungs, obscene as cancer, bitter as the cud, of vile, incurable sores on innocent tongues, my friend, you would not tell with such high zest to children, ardent for some desperate glory, the old lie, dulciet decorum est, pro patria mori, how sweet and fitting it is to die for one's country. Of course, Owen was talking about the effects of chlorine gas uh, on the lungs of the soldiers who were exposed. Absolutely terrible. And maybe I'm naive, but for goodness sake, the suffering here is beyond comprehension and it puts all my pathetic first world problems into the proper context. So, of course, there are the deaths, the terrible injuries of civilians and war fighters alike. But because war happens, people don't stop dealing with chronic diseases like cancer and acute ones like heart attack and stroke. And then, of course, the psychological anguish of being exposed to existential threats, the absence of support for people grieving loss, and then the diseases that result from loss of civilized living conditions, no running water, no food, no heating. And to get really real, disease from the dead left unburied. And then the mass graves that further hurt those left behind, no focus for their grief. And as if all that's not bad enough, you then have environmental damage. The release of noxious substances from the weapons themselves or the buildings they destroy. For instance, they now use depleted uranium used for tank armor and in penetrating shells. And when it explodes, it releases particles that cause respiratory illness. And yes, it releases radiation that's damaging when inside the body. And how many old buildings in Ukraine still contain asbestos? That part of the world was the largest producer of the substance, which is now, of course, banned in many countries. What toll will that have? Let alone the inhaled smoke particles and Lord knows what other foul substances contaminating the air that Ukrainians are breathing. And this cancer of war ripples across the world, the anxious thousands of miles away fretting as to whether the war will spread, the emotional disruption felt by refugees and those whose countries welcome them. And as always, it's the innocent who suffer. And there are many being impacted by the sanctions imposed by the West to try and stop this war. 
Yes, might these inspire Russians to seek an alternative future? Maybe. But in the process, how many will be harmed? Simply put, war is evil. With this background of woe, I'll also try and cover the good that arises from conflict, the offers of help, the kindness of strangers. But as I said, it's tough. Battlefield medicines evolved from the days of amputations aided by alcohol, meant to restrain the injured and a swift sore. But to deliver top-notch care, one needs resources, frontline medical units, evacuation protocols, and safe harbor hospitals away from the battle. In Ukraine, there's precious little of that. I heard one neurosurgeon talk of trying to help patients in a dark basement, lit only by flashlights and with precious little equipment. Getting humanitarian supplies into a country with hostile neighbors and limited sea routes and skies patrolled by enemy aircraft layers on more complexity. And the scale and focus of destruction of infrastructure not only limits options, but demoralizes those fighting to protect their country. For instance, can you imagine learning that a children's hospital in Mariupol was destroyed in early March, injuring 17 and killing three, was one particularly horrifying example. Between 24th of February and the 15th of March, the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights reported that Ukraine had suffered 1,900 civilian casualties, with 726 people killed, including 52 children, mostly caused by explosive weapons in populated areas. But I said there's more fallout, and I'm sure those numbers are almost certainly a gross underestimate. Even in countries free of conflict, treatment waiting lists are a reality made worse by the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, those lists stretch into an uncertain future. Everything from hernias to kidney transplants, chemotherapy and on, all suspended as healthcare workers attending to the injured have been injured or killed themselves or left to protect their families. And of course, there are shortages of all the medical supplies and bringing more into the country is a challenge, as I said. In many areas, healthcare has been driven underground in what was previously a progressive and well-cared-for country. And Ukraine, a country of 44 million, which has, according to the latest estimates from the World Health Organization, 2.3 million people with diabetes, 250,000 living with HIV, and around 160,000 cancer patients. There are growing reports of doctors running out of oxygen and morphine in Mariupol and other major Ukrainian cities. And in some cases, even the treatments that have been procured and paid for by Ukraine before the war have no safe channel into the country. Dr. Mike Ryan, the executive director of the World Health Organization, emphasized the urgency of the dangerously low supply of oxygen, stating in a press conference, you can't go on a waiting list for oxygen. Think about that. He went on to say that in Ukraine, there are 2,000 people who need oxygen to survive. And in fact, if anything, that number has, of course, gone up because we have people with injuries, people undergoing surgery who need oxygen. We've got children with childhood pneumonia. Earlier this month, the British Guardian newspaper reported that the oncology ward at Cherniv Children's Hospital is running out of essential painkillers to give to paediatric cancer patients. While some critically and chronically ill patients have been evacuated to Poland, Slovakia and the UK for treatment, those in besieged cities have no way out. And then there are the multiple Ukrainians suffering from one or more of over 6,000 known rare diseases ranging from 
cystic fibrosis to pulmonary hypertension. These diseases require complex care. An article recently published by EMJ, you can find the link in the show notes, called for urgent support and aid for these patients. They are especially vulnerable. Well, what about escaping, I hear you say? Well, that's hard enough to do when fit and able, but rather harder if unwell. And even assuming one makes it over the border, finding treatment, lodging, food, and so on, often with no financial resources whatsoever, is a struggle. Now factor in if they're wheelchair dependent, for whatever reason, can you begin to imagine? In less than a week, nearly half a million refugees left Ukraine. Today, it's in the millions seeking safety in Poland, Moldova, Romania, and so on. The United Nations has estimated that as many as 4 million people may ultimately leave Ukraine to seek refuge in what's being described as one of the greatest refugee crises of the century. And of course, this leads to widespread upheaval in adjacent countries, causing a, a domino effect by stressing healthcare systems in other countries who themselves have been struggling to deal with the pandemic. The sheer scale of this crisis is overwhelming for many with good intent. For instance, the Polish Health Ministry stated that its hospitals are able to treat around 7,000 Ukrainian patients, and that's quite a number. But in the context of a million-plus refugees, who knows what that could grow to in a world that's already coping with shortages of medical staff and supply chain issues in the wake of COVID. And Poland's dealing with a further COVID wave and a system where a large number of newly trained doctors leave every year to work abroad. In fact, Poland has 2.4 doctors and 5.2 nurses per 1,000 citizens. It's one of the lowest ratios of all the OECD countries in the world. And to add to the misery, according to Ernest Kuchar, head pediatrician at the Medical University of Warsaw Hospital, almost every refugee child arriving at his hospital in Poland has tested positive for COVID-19, possibly due to the conditions they experienced before escaping, confounded by the fact that prior to the invasion, only around 35% of Ukrainians were fully vaccinated. As for documentation, with the flood of evacuees, checking COVID vaccination status has obviously not been a priority. Of course, the threat of death or serious injury from the war is going to overcome hesitancy about COVID status. Viral diseases will flourish under these sort of conditions. Moreover, since October 2021, Ukraine has been trying to control a polio outbreak, just 19 years after Europe was declared to be polio-free. Last year, two Ukrainian children were found to have paralytic polio, with 20 more children testing positive for the virus since then. Due to the nature of polio, a mere 22 cases constitutes a full-blown crisis, as there's an average of 200 silent carriers for every paralytic case, meaning the virus could very easily already be spreading across the borders. In an attempt to contain the situation, a mass polio vaccination rollout was coordinated by the Ukrainian Ministry of Health and the World Health Organization to begin inoculating up to 140,000 children from six months to six years in the areas local to the cases and beyond. But the invasion put paid to that. And according to Dr. Gabrielle Fontana, a regional health advisor for UNICEF, 100,000 children remain unvaccinated and at risk. And if polio accompanied some kids over the borders, we're going to expect a much larger number of cases. And that old faithful tuberculosis is expected to emerge, which 
U.S. Chief Medical Advisor Anthony Fauci has said could be devastating and could lead to a terrible public health tragedy. And that's in the context that Ukraine has the fourth highest tuberculosis incidence in the European region and and the highest rates of multi-drug resistant TB in the world, reporting approximately 30,000 new cases of tuberculosis annually. And remember, TB is a deadly infectious disease. That hospitals have been destroyed is beyond doubt and further undermines efforts to treat this and other diseases. Vaccination programs are suspended. And once people are being treated for their injuries in less than ideal conditions, secondary infections are going to arise, especially in people who are dehydrated, malnourished, cold, and stressed. Oh, did I mention frostbite? And the escalating global food shortage and escalating prices? Well, consider this as a consequence. Ukraine's been nicknamed the breadbasket of Europe and sends more than 40% of its exports to Africa and the Middle East. And at least 50 countries depend on their wheat supplies from that part of the world. So now production will plummet. And so the spiral continues in a bad direction. You know, the term PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSI, post-traumatic stress injury, is, in my opinion, overused. And I've talked about this before on the podcast. Nowadays, one just needs to have heard about something bad or read about something bad and the more delicate claim to be traumatized. Real PTSD, PTSI, is a wound suffered by directly experiencing or witnessing something dreadful. And I have no doubt there are already countless cases from this battle. Imagine, imagine living a normal life. Then the threat of hostilities hangs over you and suddenly, suddenly becomes a reality. Death, destruction, confusion, fear, total uncertainty what the future, and by the future, I mean the next day, the next hour, the next minute, uncertainty about what that future may hold. And all to the backdrop of explosions, gunfire. You know, during the Second World War, when uh, German rockets were aimed at London, I remember my mum saying to me, it wasn't the sound of the rockets, it was when they stopped. Because that's, well, that's when you knew that the rocket was in its descent. This has to be among the most, the most traumatic life experiences a person could have. So what screening might be done for refugees so that psychological counselling could be offered? And frankly, that's something that's in short supply for the general population in times of peace. So what about now? And where PTSD exists, depression and anxiety will follow, maybe affecting up to 80% of refugees. In fact, a recent study among Syrian refugees in America found that one in three adults met the diagnostic threshold for PTSD, and almost half had high anxiety and depression. And what about the consequences of those for the individual and for society? And what's meant by PTSD is just a phrase. But what is it? Imagine this realistic flashbacks of combat, insomnia, nightmares, intrusive memories, and panic. For children, same deal. But add to that separation anxiety. Many have lost their parents. And some research suggests that future children born to parents who develop PTSD may pass that on to their offspring. Genetics, conditioning, I'm not sure. But either way, it's not good. 
We do know that early intervention for PTSD is beneficial and through telemedicine links and volunteers, such support is being offered to refugees. But at the moment, it's akin to putting a band-aid on a major wound. So I hinted at the start about environmental consequences of war. Here are just some of them. Even before the fighting commences, the military machine consumes huge amounts of resources, such as fuel and rare earth elements and so on, to build and sustain military forces. I'll give you one example. I love aeroplanes. I love flying. A typical fighter aircraft consumes over 1,500 gallons of fuel in one hour at cruise speeds. One hour. The average family car nowadays does around 35 miles per gallon and about 12,000 miles per year. So roughly 500 gallons a year. So in one hour, a fighter burns more than three family cars burn in a year. And if you fire up the afterburner or do high speed maneuvers, that consumption rate can be many times higher, up to 23,000 gallons an hour. Ukraine has numerous industrial sites that contain hazardous substances and explosions from bombs and missiles release these into the atmosphere and groundwater. Prior to this conflict, there's been fighting in the eastern Ukrainian Donbass region, where there are many such sites. And in fact, in 2018, it was deemed to be on the verge of environmental catastrophe from all the released pollutants. The threat of nuclear fallout horrifies, of course, and one normally thinks of this coming from weapons. But accidents at nuclear power reactors are more likely, and Ukraine has four reactors which supply around half of the country's energy. A deliberate or, frankly, erroneous attack or maintenance failure due to staff absence or infrastructure failure could have devastating consequences globally. Just think of the worst nuclear accident thus far. Yup, Chernobyl, Ukraine, 1986 a site recently seized by the Russians amidst concerns that there could be further radiation leaks. And as one considers the concept of unintended consequences, we all know that climate change is a real and existential threat. And while a war is being fought with all the aforementioned sequelae, the focus on effecting policies to halt climate change is distracted. None of this is good, but I'm going to be addressing climate change in future episodes. Oh, goody, I hear you say. Okay, enough of the doom and gloom. What can we do to help? How can we as individuals make any sort of tangible difference? Well, there are countless registered charities providing all sorts of resources, medical and food supplies, clothes, emergency shelters, and so on to Ukraine directly and to the countries accepting refugees. Think UNICEF, the British Red Cross, Choose Love, Save the Children, and so on and so forth. The donation links for all of these organizations are available in the show notes and any consideration will help. We've seen some heartwarming stories of families taking in Ukrainian refugees and if that appeals directly or contributing to charities supporting those actions, check out volunteering opportunities as well as for the organization Volunteer for Ukraine, which is also linked in the show notes. Here's one example for you that I really liked. Two fellows from Wimbledon in London Mark Strong and John Fogles raised over £30,000 to buy three disused National Health Service ambulances. They serviced them, filled them to the brim with equipment before driving them to the border town of Kortsova in southeast Poland. They now hope to buy another 30 ambulances to continue their mission. What a couple of great guys. 
and a convoy of ambulances transported numerous children with cancer to five UK cancer centres. The World Health Organization and WHO are working to deliver life-saving equipment and medications such as oxygen, insulin, anaesthetics, bandages, blood transfusion kits, defibrillators, electrical generators, and on and on. On March the 5th, the WHO delivered anti-tetanus toxoid to Kyiv, as well as 36 tons of vital medical supplies to Lviv for further distribution across Ukraine. The Polish government are also considering setting up more temporary hospitals in stadiums so that patients can be seen earlier to prevent death. It's reminiscent of the medical tents used in World War II to ensure that patients could be seen within the golden hour for treatment. I've spoken with doctors working in Kyiv and elsewhere, and the conditions are shocking. The injuries and diseases they face are horrifying, and the lack of materiel depressing. But what one hears in their voices is not depressing. It's heartening. It's the very best of humanity in our profession on display. Obviously, we wish it were unnecessary, but how amazing to see the good side of life amongst such tragedy. Professor David Knott, consultant vascular and trauma surgeon from St. Mary's Hospital, has experience in many conflict zones, including Syria, Afghanistan and Iraq. He couldn't directly help in Ukraine, but he found a way to contribute by offering guidance over Zoom. Recently, the good professor delivered a 12-hour online surgery training course to over 570 healthcare professionals on war zone-specific injuries, which, of course, many medical workers would never have otherwise encountered. One doctor on the call said that although there were air raid sirens, he stayed online to learn as much life-saving information as possible. So as I said, amongst all the terrible news, there is some good news. I'm afraid that's all the time that we have today on the EMG Health Podcast. And please, if you can, check out the brilliant charities that are linked in the show notes and consider what you can do to help. Also, if you have any topics you wish us to cover about climate change or frankly anything else, please drop us an email at editorial at emjreviews.com. Again, that's editorial at emjreviews.com. While hearing stories of human courage and decency, we all hope that this dreadful conflict ends soon. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said, it's a victory when the weapons fall silent and people speak up. And that reminds me of Futility, an anti-war poem by Wilfred Owen, who I mentioned earlier. He said, was it for this the clay grew tall? Oh, what made fatuous sunbeams toil? to break Earth's sleep at all. Until next time, I'm Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Thank you for listening to the EMG Health Podcast. Please stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Mm-hmm.